Welcome to the War Diary Podcast. And now he's wearing a bi-weekly reading of life during World War II. She had a tear in the corner. These records of her are from the tail gunner of a B-24 bomber. As he said his last. This is the diary of my grandfather, and this is his story. The beginning. To my future family, I hope one day to share with you the diary I'm about to begin. The time is August 1942 and the United States has been at war with Japan and Germany since December 1941. Everything is changing around me. We must use paper coupons instead of money to buy gas and tires and many other things. There are shortages of many things, so the government is rationing out numerous items we used to buy without a second thought. Dad still has his job in Philadelphia, and Mom is taking care of us at home. Many women are working in factories. I've been trying to join the army for a year, but mom and dad would not give me permission to join. My older brother, Albert, joined the army earlier this year. He's still in the States undergoing training. I think he's in Florida somewhere. My younger sister, Grace, is still in her early teens and in school. She's too young to work in the factories to support the war effort, so hopefully she'll enjoy growing up while the war is being fought on the other side of the world. I turned 18 in May of 42 and spent the next four months pestering my parents to sign papers that would allow me to join the service. I won. On October 17, 1942, I was sworn in at the Customs House in Philadelphia with 50 other fellows. I have a strong feeling that nothing bad is going to happen to me. Most everyone I talk to feels that way. I think this war is going to be a great adventure, and I've decided to keep a diary for you, my future family. Something inside of me is telling me that if I think about you and plan life after the war, it will keep me alive. Although I don't know much about God, I do know that he can and does protect people, and I believe for some reason, or a feeling that I don't understand, he will bring me through this war. I hope what I do in the coming months, or it could be years, will make you proud of me. After me and all the other fellows were sworn into the army in Philadelphia, we boarded the train and headed to Miami Beach for five weeks of basic training. Wow, Miami Beach. I used to spend my summers at the seashore in Wildwood, New Jersey. I can't wait to see Miami Beach. November 22, 1942. On my way to gunnery school at Tyndall Field, North Florida. I thought I'd have lots of time to keep this diary, but the army keeps us busy day and night. There wasn't much time to write, and even less time to have fun. I saw the beach once in the whole five weeks in Miami Beach, and that was when we were driving by it in the back of an army truck. In fact, that's where I am right now as I write this. We're on our way to the train station again. Basic training is over, and I'm going to Tyndall Field in North Florida for five weeks of aerial gunnery training. When I signed up, I was going to be a mechanic and work on trucks. That's what I told Mom and Dad, and that's what I planned to do. 
until I saw the posters that showed a picture of an airman flying through the sky and shooting down Nazis and Japs. That looked really exciting. Plus, I would get extra flight pay, not have to get all dirty working on engines, and I'll have sergeant stripes when I graduate from Tyndall. December 28, 1942. On my way to Lowry Field, Colorado. Not much time to write. I just finished the five weeks of aerial gunnery training, and I'm on my way to Lowry Field in Denver for armorer school. Maybe I'll have more time to write once I'm done with all this training. January 25th, 1943. School, school, school. I'm sure learning a lot about guns and bombs. As a gunner, I have to learn quite a bit about explosives. Today I learned about small arms ammunition, military explosives, pyrotechnics, and the disposal of duds, or bombs that didn't explode. We also studied about bombs and fuses. The Army Air Corps puts a lot of emphasis on training. Maybe all this training will help me get through the war so I can start a family one day when the war is over. February 11th, 1943. On my way to Galveston, Texas. Today, I graduated from Armorer School here at Lowry Field in Denver. I stood outside today with 2,000 other GIs in the bitter cold and swirling snow, waiting for the colonel to hand out diplomas. After the graduation exercises, the first sergeant called out names and assignments in alphabetical order. Most of the graduates were assigned to bomb groups as replacement gunners. I started to get concerned when I didn't hear my name called when they began with L's. Finally, one hour and a guy by the name of Zippy Zaz later, the sergeant called five names, and mine was one of them. What fate prompted our names to be selected out of the thousands, I'll probably never know. Or perhaps it is God selecting me for a reason. I hope he is. We received our orders to report to the commanding officer, he's called the CO for short, of the 10th Anti-Submarine Squadron in Galveston, Texas, and we left today. They put the oldest fellow in charge of getting us to Galveston. He was given an envelope with railroad tickets and coupons for food and lodging. His name is Gordon. I can't believe he's 38 years old. That's older than my dad. There's something about Gordon we all like. The five of us boarded the train just in time for dinner and slept in the Pullman berths. Pullmans are like bunk beds that fold down and you pull a curtain around you for privacy. And that's where I am right now. Galveston. The next afternoon, we arrived in St. Louis and transferred to another train and headed south. Two days later, we reached Houston, Texas. The train to Galveston didn't leave until the following morning. We didn't have enough coupons for a hotel room, so we slept on the benches in the Houston Railroad Depot that night. At 10 the next morning, we boarded the train for the 50-mile ride to Galveston. The old train roared and whistled and reached 35 miles per hour. We bounced side to side and wondered when the engine would come off the track. We finally arrived in Galveston. The building next to the railroad station was the Panama Hotel and Restaurant. The place looked run down, but it was lunchtime and we were hungry. Inside, it was neat and clean with red checkered cloths on the tables. An attractive waitress with red hair took our order. Gordon decided on whiskey and beer for his lunch. Kenneth started charming the waitress, and she seemed to like him. We finished eating, and Gordon was starting on his fourth drink. We'd better call the airbase and let them know we're here, Joe Bolzer suggested. 
Let us relax and rest a while after our strenuous journey. Gordon took a hefty swallow from his glass. This is a cozy eating and drinking house. Well, they're real smart, Joe turned to me, putting him in charge. He's got the brains of a 14-year-old. I heard that treasonable remark. Gordon leaned close and waved a finger in Joe's face. I'll have you know, there's no one here that has the combat experience that I have. Has he seen action? I asked with enlarged eyes. Yeah, Kenny tried to keep a straight face. He shot down a fighter. Really? I was impressed. Tell me about it, Gordon. He knocked down the tow target plane at Tyndall. Kenneth banged his fist on the table as Gordon sat with a simple grin on his face. We left the restaurant at three o'clock. Gordon gave the cashier the remaining food coupons, but was short $2.33. Everyone checked their pockets. We counted out every penny and came up with three cents to spare. If you hadn't drank so much booze, you wouldn't have to take our money, Joe yelled at Gordon. Oh, what you say? Call the base and tell them we're here. Kenneth glared at Gordon. Joe got peeved because we didn't have a nickel to call the airbase. He went back inside the restaurant, and the cashier allowed him to use the telephone. We waited an hour before a small truck picked us up. There wasn't much room to sit after we loaded our barracks bags. We reported to the orderly room. A big and tough-looking master sergeant with a deep, booming voice greeted us. You can call me sergeant. You can call me Sergeant Williamson. And when I get to know you recruits better, and if I tell you it's okay, you can call me Snake. He did not smile. The sergeant turned us over to Corporal Trent. The corporal said, Major Mueller is the CO. The corporal looked toward a closed door, and we followed his gaze. The lettering said, Major Thomas A. Mueller, Commanding Officer. Minutes later, the CEO came from his office, and we snapped to attention. At ease, men, the Major said. Welcome to the 10th Anti-Submarine Squadron. He gave us a fleeting smile. You men are here because we need radio operators to complete our flight crews. Kenneth raised his hand. Sir, do I have permission to speak? Yes, Sergeant, the Major answered. Sir, you said you need radio operators? Radio gunners is the correct description, Sergeant. The Major appeared annoyed by the technicality and frowned. Sir, we're armorer gunners. What? The frown increased and wrinkles spread across his forehead. Yes, sir. The Sergeant on the other side of the room stopped typing and looked at us. The Corporal moved to a file cabinet. He found some papers and showed them to the C.O., This is the M.O. number we requested, Major. The corporal pointed to the document. It appears, corporal, that a 612 is an armorer gunner, not a radio gunner. The major mumbled something, but we couldn't hear him. I'll bet they're going to ship us back to Denver. I watched the major's face. He appeared to be in deep thought. He walked to a window and looked out. I don't think he was admiring the view. A few silent minutes later, he turned and faced us. He had a firm and assured look in his face. Men, we do need radio gunners, as I've stated. However, I see no problem. He cleared his throat with a slight cough. The squadron will train you to be radio operators. You will be assigned to flight crews as gunners, but will attend classes and receive training in radio procedures that the squadron will provide. 
Sergeant Bailey will make the arrangements for your training. He glanced at the typist in the corner. That will be all, men. We snapped to attention and saluted. He gave us a half-hearted salute in return and went back into his office. Sergeant Bailey told us what barracks to bunk in. He said we were to report to him in the morning and he'd have something to tell us about radio school. The barracks were covered on the exteriors with black tar paper and finished inside as minimally as possible. There were plenty of empty cots in the half-filled barracks. We selected bunks and then were directed to the mess hall. The kitchen was run by Sergeant Griffith. He was a tough-looking soldier, about 35, with a crew cut. He looked like he would be at home in a boxing ring. He was about 6 foot and probably weighed 250 pounds. When we entered the mess hall, I thought we were in the wrong building. The tables were covered with white linen tablecloths. There were heaping bowls of food and ceramic dishes on the table. We sat down and helped ourselves. Whoever emptied a food bowl would hold it up and the KP would quickly replace the dish with another container. Seconds were permitted, provided that no food was wasted. Sergeant Griffith did not tolerate waste, and bad table manners were cause for Sergeant Griffith to become upset, to the point that he was not pleasant to be around. The next morning we reported to the orderly room and met the two master sergeants who were in charge of base communications. Sergeant Sullivan would instruct us in radio code, and Sergeant Peterson would teach us radio theory. I don't think the sergeants like the prospect of teaching us any more than we like the prospect of being taught. Later that morning, we were assigned to cruise. I was told to report to my flight commander, Lieutenant William G. Shoemaker, the following day. I spent an hour walking around the airbase, and learning the locations of the various buildings, I found the PX, recreation room, non-com club, and the operations office. The airbase was medium-sized, and it appeared the Air Corps was in the process of lengthening the landing strips. There was a line of cement trucks going back and forth toward the far end of the runway. I ran into Sergeant Williamson by one of the hangars. Making an inspection, are you? Yeah, and I like what I see. Sergeant Williamson. I'm really glad to be here. This is my first permanent assignment. I've been doing nothing but going to school since I enlisted. You enlisted, huh? He didn't smile. Well, I'm glad that you like our facilities. I would really be upset if you didn't appreciate everything we have here. I would too. I'd go AWOL. Oh, you would, would you? He grinned for the first time. I hear you've been assigned to Lieutenant Shoemaker. I nodded. What's the lieutenant like? Shoe's okay. It's kind of wild when it comes to women, but he's a sharp pilot. You're going to like him. He made it sound like an order that I had to like Shoemaker. He's a good pilot? He's about the best in the squadron. The sergeant smiled. There's two things that Shoe cares about. Women and flying. But no one knows which comes first. Oh, ladies' man, huh? Yep. But I'll tell you, keep your nose clean around Shoe. He won't stand for any foul-ups. He'll boot anybody off the crew that messes up. Of course, when he's not flying and not chasing after the broads, he's easy to get along with. I'm going to be flying as gunner until I'm trained to be a radio operator. Yeah, I heard about that foul-up. 
The sergeant took his fatigue cap off and wiped his brow. Somebody screwed up when they made the requisition for radio operators. They put the wrong MO number on the form to the 26th wing. His laugh was unusual. <laughs> the CEO was hot. He ate a couple of his aides out. Oh, I'm surprised they didn't send us back to Denver. No way, kid. Too much red tape and explaining to do. That's why the major decided to let the squadron train you recruits. I read in the military handbook that no one can have two M.O.s. You recruits are going to have two. I'm not a recruit, Sergeant. I didn't like being called a recruit. Oh, you're not, huh? How long have you been in this man's army? I counted on my fingers. Five months. You're a recruit. He laughed at the look on my face. Tell me something. You've been in the army five months, and you're a buck sergeant? And your nose isn't brown? How'd you do it? Well, I got taken in by some colorful posters at Miami Beach during basic training. They had uh, pictures of gunners zooming down on Japs and blasting them out of the sky. I used my hands to demonstrate a... Rat-a-tat-a-tat-tat. So I decided to become a gunner. After I finished gunnery school at Tyndall, I made sergeant. We've got soldiers on this base that have been in the army for years, and they're PFCs and corporals. He looked at me carefully. And I'll tell you something else. A lot of them are jealous of you recruits. I looked him straight in the eye. You tell them old soldiers to sign up for gunnery school if our stripes bother them that much. I'm not making apologies for what I've earned and what I face. He shook his head in agreement. Not those guys. They're peacetime soldiers. They have a home in the army, and they want nothing to do with war. That's their problem. My problem is learning to be a radio operator. I hope this Lieutenant Shoemaker don't expect too much. Don't worry, kid. You've got the best radio teachers in the Air Corps, and about the hottest woman-loving pilot you're ever going to meet. Ah, come on, Sergeant. It can't be that bad. Call me Snake, kid. He turned and looked toward the road that ran by the hangar. He dropped his voice to a harsh whisper. Do you see that red Chevy convertible parked over there? Yeah. That's Shoe's car. Take a gander over there and look inside, and you'll see high hill footprints all over the roof. His expression was dead serious. You mean on the canvas? How would footprints get up there? From long-legged gals with their feet up in the air. Come on, I'm not gullible, Snake. I smiled slightly. Oh, you don't believe me? He looked mean. I think you're kidding me. Okay, kid. Don't believe a thing old Snake told you. He put his cap on his short, cropped hair. I gotta run over to Bee Hanger. I'll see you later. I stayed by the fence for a while and watched a few twin-engine bombers take off. Minutes later, I crossed the roadway and walked casually by the red Chevy. On an impulse, I turned around and went back to the car. The window was down on the driver's side. I put my head inside and inspected the roof. There were no footprints, only a few smudges. There were two paper coffee cups on the back seat and a two-week-old copy of the Galveston Times and a leather flight jacket on the front seat. I felt a hard slap on my back, followed by... (laughs) Sergeant Williamson was enjoying my gullibility. See, kid, I told you. There's no footprints on the roof. I had to listen to his har-har-har for another minute. I know why they call you Snake. I felt stupid.
You sneak up on people. I walked away from his laughter and headed toward the barracks. After lunch, I went to the rec room with Joe and played ping pong. He was a good player, and I was totally new at the game. All right, I'm tired of you winning, I complained. Let's go down to the flight line and check out the aircraft. Joe agreed. We went inside the ships and marveled at the complex instrument panel in the cockpits of the Lockheed Venturas and the huge engines that drove them through the sky. Hey, you're the new guys that came through the other day, a GI working on one of the engines commented. Yeah, Joe agreed. These are some engines, monstrous. How they too big for the aircraft, the mechanic answered. If one of the engines conks out when you're flying, even if they sputter and cough, goodbye. Uh, what do you mean? I asked with some apprehension. How the ship noses over and straight down you go. There's not a chance in hell of pulling out of a dive. Uh, any other good news you want to tell us? Joe said candidly. The mechanic grinned. Hey, heard about the foul-up. Wanted radio men and they got gunners. But you got a good deal coming to Galveston. Good weather most of the time and there's more women than you can shake a stick at. Where do you go to town and... He kept blabbing for the next five minutes. We get tired of listening to his jabber about the night spots, Murdoch's Pier, the big hotels, and all the women. Uh, we have to go, I said. Hey, don't forget to hit the night spots I told you about, he called after us. What's he think we'll use for money? Joe commented when we walked away from him. Beats me, I answered. I've got exactly three cents till payday. I showed him my three pennies. They don't even make them out of copper anymore. These were made out of tin or something. Joe told me, Save them. They might be worth money 50 years from now. The next morning, I went down to the flight line and met Lieutenant Shoemaker. He shook my hand and then introduced me to the crew. Bill Shoemaker was about my height, but with a stocky build. He looked about 25. I noticed his hands and wrists. He'd never make a piano player with those fingers. He had good strong hands, wrists, and thick fingers. He was clean and good-looking. His manner was full of confidence, and he looked the part of an airplane commander. I liked him from the start, just the way he talked. He made me feel needed and important by his mannerisms. He smiled and laughed easily. And he had a personality, a certain confidence that told me he knew what he was doing. We found we had something in common. We were both from eastern Pennsylvania. Lieutenant Jim Ingram was the co-pilot. I guessed his age at 27. He was well-spoken, educated, and a gentleman before Congress made him one. I never felt uncomfortable around him. He was helpful and concerned about all of us and was easy to talk to. Lieutenant Max Hiltman was our navigator. He was easygoing, never got excited, and never said a mean word to anyone. His age was 25. Max changed my way of thinking toward the Jewish race, which had been inborn prejudice since I could remember. The way he treated everyone, his personality. No one but a sick bigot could dislike him. And he knew his job and was no doubt the best navigator in the Air Corps. When we flew in combat, I was glad he was with us. Lieutenant Morton S. Moody was our bombardier. He was about 26 years old. I could talk to Mort like he was a relation. Calm, cool, and when he operated the bomb site, goodbye target. His ability to hit the target was uncanny. He seldom missed. When I first met Mort, I thought he might be rank conscious, but I was mistaken. 
I liked flying with him, except the times he wanted me to get out of my turret so he could fool around with the guns. Socially, he was a lot of fun to be with, and we shared many a good times. Sergeant Becker was 23 and flew as radio operator. He went to a special school and learned about radar. At the time, the word radar meant super secret equipment. He used the radar on our patrols and searched for submarines. Every crew member had to be cleared by the FBI prior to flying in any aircraft equipped with radar. Becker was quiet, and his friends were the same. We were told never to discuss radar among ourselves or anyone else. Becker gave me a suspicious look when I asked him how radar worked. Sergeant William Leeming was tall, lanky, 22 years old, and New York City raised, quick-witted and knowledgeable in the ways of the world. He was generous without fault. Bill would loan anyone his last dollar, and many times it was me that borrowed it. We became friends immediately and shared many memories before we lost touch. Private Peppard was the assistant flight engineer. His age was 28. He was slightly under my height, but he weighed at least 75 pounds more, and the more was all muscles. I never met anyone before or since that had a build like Peppard. He was rock hard, solid as two bulls, and would equal the body of Charles Atlas. I think some of his muscles reached into his brain. Peppard was slow and didn't learn too quickly. But no one would be stupid enough to infer that he was dumb while in his company. His favorite pastime was drinking and fighting. He was a private because he had been busted from Buck Sergeant for his involvement in fights. He had also been in the guardhouse on numerous occasions for engaging in his favorite hobby, drunken brawls. None of the crew members associated with Peppard socially. His companions were fellows like himself. They came from the Louisiana bayous, and their pleasure was the same as his, drinking, fighting, and raising hell. February 23rd, 1943. Submarine Patrols. Our patrols took us a few hundred miles over the Gulf of Mexico. The P-34 Lockheed Venturas carried depth charges in the event we sighted enemy submarines. Flying was exciting, and I enjoyed every moment. Part of our job, besides searching the seas for enemy submarines, was to identify merchant ships that we sighted on our patrols. There were flag codes that established what country the ship was from. Upon sighting a ship, we would fly over the vessel, and the seamen would hoist flags that identified them. The purpose was to prevent a German ship, masquerading as an Allied vessel, from drawing within range and sinking our ships. On one of our patrols, we sighted a freighter and went through the normal routine. We waited for their identity flags to be raised, but they ignored us. We're going down and buzz them, Lieutenant Shoemaker announced over the intercom. The right wing dipped and we headed toward the freighter. We flew a hundred feet above the slow-moving vessel. Annoyance was evident in Shoemaker's voice when he called instructions over the intercom. I'm going to make another pass. If they don't raise their flags, we'll come around and shoot a few rounds across their bow. I reached for the ammunition and prepared to load one of the 30 caliber machine guns. Make sure you don't hit them, Shoemaker added quickly. We came roaring in and flew alongside the ship, almost level with the main deck. The sailors were surprised when they spotted machine guns pointing at them. Suddenly, everyone on board was scurrying around and the flags were hoisted promptly. 
The afternoon of our second day at the airbase, we reported to Sergeant Sullivan. We received our first lesson in Morse code. Then Sergeant Peterson talked at some length about radio theory. I found it boring, as did the others. Gordon had his eyes shut ten minutes into the lesson, but kept nodding his head as if he understood everything the sergeant was discussing. At four o'clock, we were excused. Hey, how was your patrol? Joe asked me. No sweat. How about you? Do you like Baines? He's a good pilot, Joe said. Not as good as mine, I boasted. Hey, who says so? Everybody, including Snake. Latrine rumors, Joe replied with a grin. I hope Shoemaker is good. Your life depends on him. Yeah, and I hope Baines is a good pilot too. Our routine was flying every day. If we didn't fly sub-patrols, we flew training flights. Every other day, we attended radio class. The sessions lasted two hours. We had plenty of spare time. We also attended squadron classes on aircraft identification, weather, and phonetic codes. Once a week, we marched for half an hour, and on occasion, we did some calisthenics. Life was much easier, nothing like the strenuous schedule prior to joining the 10th anti-sub. Some days, we were off at noon. Seldom did we have duty after 4 o'clock. We could go to town every day if we chose. The biggest problem was money. Everyone was generally broke a week after payday. My sergeant's pay was $78 a month, plus 50 cents for flight duty. To qualify for flight pay, every airman had to have a minimum of four hours flying time per month. The $117 went through my fingers like water. Honky-tonk times. To fill our idle times, we started a softball team and generally played whenever we could get enough guys together. I also spent a lot of time in the rec room playing ping-pong or drumming on an old upright piano. I had been on the base one week when I went with Joe and Bill to the PX for a beer. Tastes lousy, I remarked. I don't know why anyone would drink beer. It makes you feel good, Joe tried to convince me. Well... I don't feel good after I drink it. It tastes like yuck. Listen, toe target. You don't drink beer for the taste. Joe gave me an acidic look. You drink it to get a little drunk. Hey, don't call me toe target. I snapped at him. And why do I want to get drunk? To feel good, Joe answered. Well, every guy I saw at Tyndall and Lowry that got drunk didn't feel so great. The next day they were sick as dogs. Hey, You ever been drunk? Bill asked. Yeah, once, I think. You think? Joe smiled. Well, they said I was, I replied. I guess it was because the next day I felt bad. I swore I'd never touch the stuff again. Joe replied, Look, if you're going to have fun, or you're going to go any place where there's something doing, you're going to have to get used to the booze. Joe took a big swallow of his beer. And this G.I. beer... We're drinking. This isn't like regular beer. The alcohol's been cut in half. He took another big swallow. You'd have to drink a couple of gallons to feel anything. Joe's telling you like it is, Bill said. I said, you mean I can't have fun unless I drink? Oh, you can go to the USO and sip the lemonade and dance with the sweethearts, Bill stated. When those sweeties aren't dancing with the GIs, they're teaching Sunday school. And it's hard to make time with any of them. You can't date them? I was surprised. Oh, sure. But you gotta keep it hush-hush, Joe added. 
Of course, if you've only got a nickel in your pocket, then the USO is the place to go, Bill stated. A lot of the cheapskate GIs go there so they don't have to spend any money. He emptied his glass. Payday is Friday, and Joe and me are going to town. You want to come with us? Um, sure. I want to see Galveston. Are you going to get a couple drinks? Joe had a teasing ring in his voice. I'll try it. But if I get sick, it's your fault. Oh, if you get sick, we'll take care of you, Joe assured me. Do you think they'll serve me? Uh, if you're in uniform and you got money in your pocket, they'll serve you, Bill assured me. How old are you? Eighteen. I thought you were sixteen, Joe laughed. Oh, you're funny, I replied with sarcasm. On Friday night, we took the bus into Galveston. We walked around the downtown area for an hour, and Joe whistled at a couple of girls. I was embarrassed, but the girls didn't seem to mind. They smiled and waved. We kept walking and found ourselves down by the train station. Hey, there's Kenneth and Gordon, Bill pointed as they entered the Panama restaurant. We crossed the street and went inside and joined them. Minutes later, Bob Singer and Kenny walked in. Hey, we're staying over. Kenny said. We've got a room next door. If you guys want to chip in, you can bunk with us. Hey, do you want to? Joe looked at me and Bill. Yeah, I guess so, I replied. Okay with me, Bill agreed. It'll cost you a buck each, Kenny said. Me and Poppy are staying at the hotel a few blocks from here, Kenneth said. Yeesh, Gordon acknowledged with slurred speech. A very fine hotel in the red light district. Ah, so what? Kenneth added. We're only going to sleep there. Is it cruddy? Bill asked Gordon. There's not the neatest. But as the spick said, we're only going to sleep in the joint. He called to the waitress when she walked by our table. Miss, bring me a double burden with a water chaser. You other fellows want anything? She looked around the table at us. Roman Coke, Joe said. All the same, Bill told her. I didn't know what to do. I was trying to decide if I should order a drink. Ah, bring him a rum and coke, Joe told the waitress. What would you like? She looked at Kenneth. I'd like you, babe, he answered without the slightest hesitation. Stay away from him, Gordon told her. He's a phony. He'll lead you down the primrose path. He's drunk, Reds, Kenneth forced a smile. Make sure he tells you about his wife in California, Gordon said. As soon as the waitress moved toward the kitchen, Kenneth turned on Gordon. Mind your own business, Kenneth glared at him. Why'd you tell her I'm married? Because you are, and I don't like to see you mesh with that sweet girl, you spick. Within the next hour, we had two drinks each, except Gordon. He had three double shots. I could feel a warm glow building inside me. I don't know what I was happy about, but everything seemed nice and pleasant, and I really enjoyed sitting and drinking with my friends. Come on, let's get out of here, Joe moved out of his chair. Let's go uptown and see something. I think it's fine here, I replied with a contented smile. I'm going, Joe said flatly. I'm coming with you, Bill stood up. Oh, I might as well come too, I said reluctantly. Gordon had his head on the table, and Kenneth was talking to the red-haired waitress when we left. Kenny and Singer said they'd see us in the hotel room later on. We boarded a bus and got off near the Buccaneer Hotel. Bill mentioned the pirate's den, and we decided to see what it was like. 
This is all right, I remarked when we sat at the bar. What do you have, fellows? The bartender asked. Make mine a rum and coke. I ordered like, and I was accustomed to frequenting taverns. There were a lot of people in the pirate's den, but it wasn't crowded. A couple of girls came in and sat at the bar next to Joe. I was sitting between Joe and Bill, but I leaned forward and started talking to the girl sitting next to Joe. She was quite friendly. I asked Joe to exchange seats with me. He gave me a hard look, but he did as I asked. The girl had long blonde hair, blue eyes, and her lipstick was fire engine red. I told her I liked her shade of lipstick, and she laughed very loudly. Ten minutes later, we conversed like we were old friends. I was completely uninhibited, not the least bit bashful, and completely at ease talking to this new acquaintance. My eyes and senses became aware of things that I'd never paid much attention to before. I noticed her breasts and sensuous mouth, and the way her tongue moved about when she talked and laughed. Before this night, I was never acutely aware of these things. I always described girls as either pretty or ugly, fat or thin. Betsy Ann was her name. She had a thick Texas accent, and the longer we sat at the bar, the thicker it became. She spoke words to me that no girl had ever said to me before. She called me sugar. Then another time, it was honey and sweet boy and even lambie pie. I didn't care for lambie pie, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Bubba, the bartender, kept the rum and cokes coming. Betsy Ann insisted that she pay for her own drinks. I wanted to show her I was a big spender, but she wouldn't permit it. Y'all just a soldier boy, sweetie. You sure can't afford to spend your money on little old me. After a few drinks, the five of us moved to a booth. I sat with Betsy Ann. The other girl, Mabel, sat between Joe and Bill. Now isn't this about the best time? We're all a-sitting, having a nice, sociable gathering. It sure is, I agreed happily. Bill rolled his eyes at Joe and shook his head. Sometime later, I fell silent. I stared at the top of Bill's head and was afraid to move my eyes from the point I had fastened onto it. Bill noticed my stare. He felt the top of his head. What's the matter with my hair? I answered without moving my eyes. Nothing. But if I look at anything else, the room turns sideways. Shrill laughter poured from Betsy Ann and pulsated in my eardrums. I don't feel too good, I admitted. Y'all need some fresh air, sweetie. She pulled me out of the booth. We'll go outside for a spell. When I stood up, I felt terrible. Joe came with us. We sat down on the curb in front of the pirate's den. Uh, he's had too much booze, Joe commented. He's not used to it. Y'all gonna be alright, sugar, Betsy Ann assured me. What y'all need is something to eat. She put her hand on her stomach. I know just the place. They got the best fried chicken in the world and the shrimp just melts in your mouth. Oh, I don't want any. My stomach was turning. I don't know if I like food anymore. Joe went back inside and returned with Bill and Mabel. We walked two blocks to the world-famous restaurant. After consuming a fried chicken dinner, I felt so good I ordered a rum and coke, but settled for a beer after the waitress told me they didn't serve hard drinks. Joe looked at his watch. It's almost midnight. We better head back to the hotel. His eyes met mine. I know my way to the Panama, 
You and Bill go ahead. Me and Betsy Ann are just uh, going to sit here and make some friendly talk. I leaned against her. Uh, you sure? Joe eyed me. Sure, I'm sure. I winked at Betsy Ann. I gotta go, Mabel said. Will you boys walk me to the bus station? Joe and Bill agreed and left with Mabel. I turned toward Betsy Ann. I sure enough like your lipstick, and you all got about the reddest lips I'd ever seen, and you got pretty blue eyes too. You just an old honey, saying nice things like that, and y'all talking more like a Texan all the time. A second later, she kissed me with her fire engine red lips. I was really surprised, but I didn't complain. I bet you show enough like my lipstick even more now. She threw her head back and giggled. I nodded agreeably and took a deep swallow of beer. I looked over the rim of the glass and noticed a man walking toward us. He was looking at me, but his words were for Betsy Ann. I've been looking all over for you. His eyes were definitely on me. I tried the pirates then. Bubba said you left there a long time ago. Sure, honey pot, we're just sitting here eating some chicken. Well, I thought. She never called me that. All the sweet talk she gave me, and never once did she call me honey pot. This giant must be someone special. Who might you be, boy? Honeypot asked with big black eyes and a deep, demanding voice. Y'all hear me? I was admiring his giant build, his thick neck muscles and his mean, unsmiling face, while I tried to remember who I was. This here's Eddie, Betsy Ann said. He's one fine boy, a gentleman, if I ever met one. And y'all know something, Honeypot. He reminds me of my little brother. You don't look like your brother. Honeypot put his face close to mine. Where you get your lipstick from, boy? Didn't I tell you? Betsy Ann laughed. Just before y'all came in here, he smooched with Mabel. My sister was with y'all. Honeypot glanced at Betsy Ann and then at me. Show sure enough, I answered with my new Texas accent. I reckon she done left here no more than a few minutes ago. Honeypot seemed more relaxed as he hovered over me. Boy, y'all been a gentleman sitting here with my woman? I nodded quickly. I told you, he'd just been a darling. Betsy Ann assured him for both of us. I rightly appreciate that, boy. Honeypot put his flattened out giant hands on the table and looked down at me. One thing I can't tolerate is any man messing with my wife mate. He turned to his wife mate. Time to be getting home. I don't want to go home. I wants to have a good time, y'all hear? I said we gonna go home and we going. It is kind of late. I looked at my wristwatch and yawned. Uh, time for me to leave, too. I stood up so Betsy Ann could slide out of the booth. I felt like a midget standing alongside Honeypot. I'm going to finish my beer and then I'm leaving, I explained and sat down. Honeypot pulled Betsy Ann toward the door. She waved and shouted, but I couldn't make out what she said. I finished my beer and then drained Betsy Ann's glass. I left the restaurant at 1.30. I felt like I was going to fall asleep by the time I walked into the lobby of the Panama Hotel. I climbed the flight of stairs and went down the dimly lit hallway and found room 23. The door was locked. I rapped several times and pounded on the door. 
I pressed my ear against the keyhole and heard loud snoring. I tried kicking the door, but no one stirred. I went down the steps to the lobby. An old man was sitting on a stool behind the desk with his eyes closed and a dead cigar dangling from his thick lips. Hey, mister, I banged on the counter. His eyes snapped open. What you want? I'm locked out of my room. Give me the key to room 23. Ain't got no keys. I just stays here for the boss to keep my eyes in the place. I can't get in any of them rooms, no, sir. Uh, I'm about ready to lay down on the floor. He looked like a blur. Don't you have a pass key? No, sir, no keys. You was leaving that sofa over there, he pointed. Ain't nobody gonna bother you. I'll keep my eye on you, so you don't gotta worry your head about that. Go on ahead, soldier. Go put yourself on that sofa. At that point, I didn't care where I slept. I lay down and fell asleep so fast that I never remembered closing my eyes. The next morning, Joe was shaking me. I heard his voice before I opened my eyes. Get up. Look at you. You're a mess. He was laughing. Let me sleep. I turned and buried my face in the cushion. It's eight o'clock. He shook my shoulder. What happened to you? I turned and looked at him. What do you mean? Your shirt's half on and your face is smeared with lipstick. How come you slept down here? I couldn't get in the room. Thanks for leaving the door unlocked. I gave him a bad look. I stood up and buttoned my shirt. There were patches of lipstick on my chest that continued down to my belly button. You must have had one big time, Joe commented. Tell me about it. Uh, I don't know what happened. I was irritated. Ah, don't give me that. I sat down on the sofa and held my throbbing head with both hands. Uh, I don't remember anything except laying down on the sofa. I stood up. Uh, Let's get something to eat. Where's the rest of the jerks that locked me out of the room? They were starting to wake up when I came down. When I didn't see you in the room, I wondered what happened to you. Well, now you know. Come on, you can tell me, Joe nagged. Who was the ones that planted lipstick all over your belly? A feeling of panic swept over me. I reached for my wallet. Whew. I breathed a sigh of relief. For a moment, I thought someone rolled me. I counted my money. It's all there. You don't remember? Joe asked. Joe, if I did, I'd tell you. We went to the men's room. I washed and rubbed the lipstick from my face. We had breakfast at the Panama restaurant. We were on our third cup of coffee when the other fellows joined us. Five minutes later, Gordon and Kenneth walked in. Kenneth was limping and wore a disgusted look. Don't ever go out with Gordon, he shouted. He's nuts. Hey, don't go blabbing off at the mouth, Spick. Gordon shook his fist at Kenneth. The waitress came to the table. Gordon ordered a double bourbon and a glass of milk. You're not really going to drink that. I stared at Gordon. Sure thing, kid. His laugh revealed big (laughs) teeth. That's what you call biting the dog that bit you. The waitress returned with fried eggs for Kenneth and bourbon and water for Gordon. I shuddered when Gordon drank half the bourbon in one swallow. Do you know where we slept? Kenneth looked around the table. I know where I slept, I said sourly. On the sofa in the lobby. Oh, that's nothing, 
Kenneth had a scornful expression. We slept on the seats in the railroad station. You told us you had some room in some fancy dive, Joe grinned. Well, we spent two hours in that dump, Kenneth stated angrily. Ah, she wasn't that bad, Gordon grinned. And how come? Bob Singer asked. We got in it, too. And almost as soon as we closed the door, Gordon threw up. Ah, you got a big mouth. Gordon glared at Kenneth. At least I didn't throw up on the floor. No, Kenneth replied sourly. He threw up in the bathtub. Then he starts singing and yelling at the top of his voice, demanding room service. Can you imagine room service in a dump like that? And then the people in the other rooms start yelling and cursing. I thought we were going to have a hell of a fight. Then the owner walks in on us and told Gordon to shut up or he'd throw us out. I could have flattened that punk with no trouble. Gordon banged his fist on the table. Kenneth ignored him. About that time, the owner looked around and went into the bathroom and spots what Gordon did in the tub. Kenneth shook his head. Man, did he get tough. He told us to clean it up and he started swearing at us and... Gordon interrupted. I should have laid him out right then. I turned to Gordon. Did you clean the tub? I most certainly did not, Gordon looked indignant. There was no water. The line was broke off and capped. Gordon decided we should leave. Kenneth shook his head. The jerk went into the bathroom. I thought he was going to clean the tub. Kenneth's face reflected disgust. Instead, he did a job in it. Kenneth looked sick. Ah, oh, the odor was hideous. He did a job in the tub? Joe asked with an incredulous expression. Gordon grinned while a putrid expression spread across Kenneth's face. I started feeling nauseous and came down with a severe case of the hiccups. I glanced at Joe. He wore a weak smile. I showed that guy. Gordon picked up the shot glass and drained it. So we tried to leave. Kenneth was infuriated. But the owner had the door barricaded. What'd you do? Kenny asked. Jump out the window? We were on the third floor, Kenneth said. Gordon got the bright idea to rip the sheets and blankets and tie them together and slide down to the alley. They were nothing but rags to begin with, but I did what the jerk said. That's called ingenuity, Gordon bragged. We got everything tied together, hung them out the window. Gordon told me to go first. Kenneth gave Gordon a dirty look. Gordon wore a simple smile. I wanted to be sure it was strong enough before I'd risk it. I started out the window, and it was pitch black. I slid down and found I was ten feet from the ground. Kenneth raised his voice. Before I could drop, the sap comes sliding down the sheets, and they ripped apart. I hit the ground, and the jerk landed on top of me. Hey, who you calling a jerk, Spick? Gordon yelled. You, you jerk! Kenneth glared at him. Watch yourself, Spick, or I'll tell everybody about the hag you picked up. Gordon wore a big smile. Clappy Clara? Singer asked. Worse, Gordon grinned. More like Clappy Clara's dead mother. I will never go out with you again, Kenneth shouted. Ah, come on, old buddy, Gordon patted Kenneth on the back. Let you and me have a drink, he waved to the waitress. I grew tired of watching Gordon drink his double shots and become drunker by the minute, and listening to him and Kenneth arguing. I'm going to the room that I never used and take a shower, I said. They don't have hot water, Joe remarked. I don't care if it's ice water. My head throbbed when I stood up. I'll come with you and shave, Joe said. A half hour later, I felt much better. 
When we were leaving the hotel, we heard someone laughing in a high-pitched cackle. We turned and spotted the old man from the lobby coming toward us. He looks like Step-A-Fetch-It, Joe noted. Only slower, I added. Wonder what he wants. He he he! He threw his arms in the air like he was going to dance. Yo show had some time last evening. Me? I pointed at myself. Yoda sold it slept on the sofa. Remember, I told you to sleep there on account of you locked out your room. His laughter increased. <laughs> that lady kissing on you like crazy, but you never woke up. I looked at Joe, then back to the old man. Who was it? I was really curious. I rightly don't know, except she got lockings for you. He slapped his leg. She had yellow hair. He leaned down and slapped his leg again and cackled a few times. I sitting there behind the counter, kind of dozing like, and heard a noise and this pretty lady with yellow hair and walk around the lobby. Then she see you sleeping on that sofa. She sit down next to you. And the next thing she hugging and kissing you and telling you to wake up. But you're right on sleeping like, yo, yo, I'm dead. Joe looked at me and I returned his simple stare. And then this big man come into the lobby. He grab a hold of the lady and try to pull her off you. But she holding on you and he pull her and you fall off the sofa and bang your head. My, my, it was a wonder you didn't hurt yourself. Then the man, why, he pick you up like you weigh a fetter and put you back on that sofa. Then he picked the lady up, throw her over his shoulder like she's sack of taters and she is screaming and hitting on big man's back and they go out and at last I seen them. I pulled Joe toward the door. Uh, let's go. Joe grinned. I wonder who she was, Betsy Ann. You think it was? Positive, I snapped at him. Why are you so PO'd? Because I didn't wake up. We left the hotel and took a walk around the business district. We found a press-your-pants-while-you-wait shop and had our pants pressed. Afterward, we walked along the waterfront and watched a giant crane unload a ship. Ten minutes later, we were bored. We headed down the street, along the wharf, and looked in the windows of the stores. You want to get tattooed? Joe pointed to a sign advertising sanitary tattooing. We peered through a smoky window. There were three sailors and one GI waiting to be tattooed. They look like they're drunk, I mentioned. Oh, they're plastered, Joe agreed. Some of the fellows at the base had that done. Their arms were a festering mess. I shook my head empathically. I don't want no tattoos. You have to be drunk, Joe said. I've never met anyone who got tattooed unless they were boozed out. We watched the tattoo artist as he sat on the stool and worked on one of the sailors. He used a handheld machine that punched holes through the skin and inserted colored dyes. The sailor was quite drunk. He still winced every time the needle punctured his skin. Eh, that's not for me. I shook my head positively. Likewise, Joe agreed. Later that afternoon, we went to the YMCA and played tennis for a few hours. Everything was free to servicemen, including the loan of tennis shoes and shorts. We had supper at a hot dog stand along the seat wall. From there, we went to the pirate's den. The place was deserted. We sat at the bar and talked to Bubba, the bartender. Joe played the jukebox and sang some of the words to his favorite songs. How deep is the ocean? By seven o'clock, the pirate's den started to fill up. Looks like you're going to have a busy night, I remarked to Bubba. Yeah, Saturday nights are always busy.
he stated. We had a good crowd here last night, too. I know. I was here. I told him. Yeah, you were with Pittman's wife. Bubba shook his head. I was going to tell you about him. He's in big trouble. I didn't know Betsy Ann was married. Her old man is one tough bruiser, Bubba stated. He was in here looking for her. Yeah, I, I met Honeypot. Bubba laughed. <laughs> Betsy Ann is wild. Watch out for uh, Honeypot if you go messing with her. I have no intentions of messing with that sex pot or Honeypot. Oh, you're wising up, Toe Target. Joe jabbed me in the ribs. Yeah, I'm learning, I said. Well, it's about time. Thank you for joining me for the beginning of this adventure, episode two of the War Diary World War II podcast. To produce this podcast, I'm not only reading from my grandfather's manuscript, but I'm relying on my memory of conversations with him before he died in 2003. I'm also relying on stories shared by my father with me about my grandfather before my father's death in 2007. And finally, through my present collaboration with my uncle, Bruce Kofke, who has put a great effort in organizing this history. If you're not quite willing to wait the two or three years it's going to take me to read this entire manuscript via podcast, my uncle Bruce Kofke has successfully compiled this story into a book. It is available, and a web link to this book, entitled Tomorrow's Promise, is up on our website, www.wardiaryworldwar2.com. On the site, I've also included photos from this period of my grandfather's life, courtesy of my Uncle Bruce, as well as some of the actual field manuals and gun operation manuals from my grandfather's records, replete with notes, diagrams, and silly little sketches written by my grandfather to help him retain his training. All of these documents are viewable on the site and on our Facebook page of the same name, War Diary World War II. The content of the site and Facebook page will be updated upon the release of each episode so as to reflect and augment the story. So if you don't know what a Lockheed Ventura looked like, or what a tow target is, or what AWOL means, okay, I'll give you that one. AWOL is away without leave. It's a sure way to get yourself in big trouble while in the military. Uh, Then I'll do my best to link all of that military jargon into one place on our site. Finally, please use the site and Facebook page to share comments, stories, or ask questions. I'd love to see the platform of this podcast develop the understanding of one generation to the next. I believe this is an important history. I'm glad you're willing to relive it with me, and I'd appreciate any feedback you realize. So please join me on the next episode of the War Diary podcast, where we'll continue to follow young Ed and his new friends on more crazy situations We'll get to know these characters a bit more, and we'll continue to prepare for our role in the world war to come. But Papa's gotta be rough now, so that he can be sweet to you another day. Shh, baby. Shh, baby. Shh, 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 baby, goodbye, goodbye. Your Papa's up to seven seas.
Seven Seas. Your big tall partner's off to the Seven Seas. 